Amen. I love that hymn that we just sang, especially how the first three verses kind of expresses how the child of God wishes to do something or give something to Christ. And then the last final verse, we come to the conclusion, and when thy face I see, my ransom soul shall be through all eternity something for thee. <laughs> I mean, that just uh, overwhelms you when you think about it and consider wonderful truths in that. John chapter 8 this morning. John chapter 8. I wish to first of all thank you for your prayers. And I hope and pray God would give me the liberty this morning and grace to be able to preach what he'd have for us. For there's so many truths in this passage of Scripture, and I hope and pray that it will most of all endear our hearts closer to Christ. I don't know about you, but of all the mistakes and errors that I make in my life, the one that grieves me the most is that I I do not love Him as I should. Knowing that He loves me the way He does. Sometimes when I hear Christians speak, it just sounds like a bunch of politicians debating theological ideas and opinions. And I wonder how, glorif- how God is glorified in that. If it doesn't lead us to a greater relationship with Christ, if it doesn't make us more like Christ, what good is the knowledge we have? It's all about Christ. And in eternity, we'll find that out, that it's all about Christ. No one get ahead of myself, but it has a lot to do with this unnamed woman. She's not the first unnamed person we find in Scripture. It's not about her, it's about Christ. John chapter 8. Let's go ahead and read verses 1 through 11. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple. And all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us, remember that, commanded us that we that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, her, Woman, where are those that accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. Three words. Anything you ever hear from her? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said in him, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. I pray the Lord bless the reading of his word. You know, they said in verse 5, the scribes and Pharisees, Now Moses and the law commanded us. 
that such should be stoned. I know we all agree that all sin is an abomination before God. Yet the sin of pride and arrogance surely ranks amongst the greatest. And yet, if you couple that most abominable sin of pride and arrogance with the vain knowledge of religion, you exalt it to a level which only equals that of the devil. Ye of your father, the devil, the Lord said unto the scribes and Pharisees. The devil is an accuser of the brethren. For by pride, Satan sought to exalt himself above God, according to Scripture. And that same pride in man would seek to exalt himself above his fellow man in all things religious. As though his vain knowledge of God entitles him to be an accuser and judge over all men. Listen to their arrogance and pride. Now Moses commanded in the law, or now Moses and the law commanded us. As though the law had given them the right, entitled them to be judge and accuser of men. Beloved, though the office of Pharisee and scribe may have been lost in time, their spirit of religious pride and arrogance still lingers amongst many people today. People who have accumulated an abundance of knowledge of Scripture, yet who believe, like the Pharisees, that such knowledge entitles them to be judge of all things concerning Scripture and true Christianity. To be arrogant and prideful of your knowledge of God is an abominable sin in the sight of God. Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. They were in complete compliance to the law of Moses according to the written word. Yet their pride and arrogance concerning their knowledge of that law, together with their condemnation of this adulterous woman as though they themselves were above reproach and guiltless, was the greater sin before God. Man has a tendency, because it's in his nature, to take the truths of God and in pride and arrogance believe he's entitled to use it as though he was an arbitrator for God. God help us from such prideful and arrogant spirit when it comes to Scripture. For even if a man be overtaken by a fault, Scripture says, those which are spiritual, Paul said in Galatians, are exhorted to restore such one in the spirit of meekness, considering themselves, lest they also be tempted, how much more when one is overtaken with sin and not a fault. James said himself in James 3, My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that ye shall receive the greater condemnation, for in many things we offend all. Our Lord said in the Sermon on the Mount, we're not to leave the mote in our brother's eye, but by our considering the beam in our own eye, we gently remove his mote. Everywhere in Scripture, when it deals with us and somebody else's sins or faults, 
The scripture exhorts us to the greatest humility and meekness. Not arrogance and pride. But I guess it's just normal for the natural state of sinful man because if sinful man cannot partake in God's saving grace, then he would vainly seek to be the judge and arbitrator of man's worthiness of salvation or condemnation. We are exhorted as God's children to contend for the faith and in so doing denounce and rebuke all heresies and apostasy, yes, but when we do it presumptuously with a prideful and arrogant spirit, we bring great, great dishonor not only to God, but to His Word. It's not about us. It's about God. God save us from such prideful arrogance, for we're all prone to fall into that same sin if we're not careful. May the Word of God be received with meekness, James said. With meekness to the saving of the soul. God give us that grace and spirit to be bold, yet not in ourselves, but in Christ. To seek to honor and glory, glorify Him whenever we meet situations such as John 8. And may He receive the honor and glory. Yet let us turn our attention this morning to this unnamed woman caught in the very act of adultery and brought before Christ. Look at verses 3 and 4. Again, And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now, we know nothing of this unnamed woman. We don't know who she was. We presume she was a Jew. We don't know where she was from. Only that she was caught in the very act of adultery, which is a very heinous sin in the Old Testament. In New as well. Yet she was not the only unknown person whose life was forever changed by Christ. There are many unknowns in Scripture. The man born blind from birth, we never hear his name, but he's born blind for the glory of God. The woman with an issue of blood who came to hand Christ and touched his garment, we never find out what her name is. Even the man possessed of a legion of devils, we never know who he was, never get his name. The man by the pool of Bethsaida, who was 36 years, 38 years in infirmities, his name is never mentioned. Oh, can't forget the Canaanite woman whose daughter was possessed. Christ commending her faith being great. We never hear her name. Uh, and last but not least, there's probably others, but last but not least, least the thief on the cross. Never hear his name mentioned. Because it's not about them, it's about Christ. It's not about you or me, it's about Christ. Why do, why do men then make it about themselves? It's about Christ. Men seek today to make a name for themselves. They seek recognition and applause for their knowledge of God. 
Yet the greatest and most blessed truth concerning our salvation is that Christ is exalted and that in our relationship with Him, no one sees or recognizes us, only Him. Why do men then try to bring light and attention upon themselves? All these people had no names, but oh, I'm telling you, their lives were eternally changed when they met Christ. Because it wasn't about them, it was about Christ. Yet there's another divine and blessed truth in our text, I forgot my one, which is hidden within the words of our text in John 8. One which displays the glorious mercy and grace of God in calling out his elect from their sin and sadness. I know many people probably does not see this, but it's in the text, and I hope and pray to show you that. We talk about and we preach and we believe, I hope and pray, in God's divine election. Yet my question is, are we amazed by it or are we just prideful of it? I am of the elect. I am the seed of Abraham, like the Pharisees. How do you look at election? Is it merely a theological point? Have you really, have you really, like all truths of God, attempted to apply it personally to yourself? Why God would call you out of sin and depravity unto Christ? Would you see the mercy and grace of God in calling out His elect? Then look upon this unnamed woman caught in the very act of adultery. How the Pharisees and scribes were merely an ignorant pawns in the hand of a sovereign God. As he calls this woman from the depth of her sin and depravity and brings her face to face with Christ. Like we said last week, she probably would have never have come to Christ on her own. Possibly but probably never, not the lifestyle she was living. Yet the Pharisees and the scribes, because of the law, brings her before Christ. Draws her to Christ, to where she's standing now face to face with Christ. Oh, that God's grace and mercy in calling out His elect would be more than merely a subject for theological debate. But ever a reality which brings forth the greatest praise, love, and adoration for Christ. Think about your own personal election. Maybe we were not committing the same sins this woman was before God called us out of sin, but we weren't looking for God. We weren't desiring God. God in His sovereignty called us. He used means that we are unaware of. The scribes and Pharisees, it wasn't about them. It was the sovereignty of God using them as pawns to bring this woman out so she can stand before Christ. I remember my own election and God manipulating circumstances to get me where He wanted me to be. I won't go into details, but I hope and pray that every one of us could go back and see how God providentially 
moved things, manipulated circumstances to call us out, to bring us to the point where we can meet Christ face to face. I wasn't looking for Christ. I was looking to get away from America and all its problems. And I thought Germany, the other side of the world, was the best place to be when God providentially put me there. In that spot. Do you ever, you ever go back over that? Do you ever spend time with that? You ought to. We ought to. When I knew him not, that song, He Ransomed Me. Oh, the sweet and blessed story of a Christ who came from glory just to rescue me. When I knew Him not, He sought me, and from sin and shame He brought me, and in love divine He ransomed me. This woman, when they found her and caught her, and when they were bringing her to, to Christ, she knew nothing about what was going on. All she knew, she was caught in the act, and the law did demand death. As far as she knew, she was walking to her death. She was walking to her death. She was not only condemned in her mind, she was already dead. Yet, something amazing happens when she's there with Christ. Something the carnal eye didn't see. But there was a sovereign work of God behind the scene calling His elect unto Christ. We know not when the Spirit of God began working in our heart. I have no idea. But I've contemplated it a lot the last week. When did the Spirit of God begin to work? Was it when she was standing there and listening to the conversation of the Pharisees and scribes with Christ? Surely it wasn't their words. Was it something Christ did? Was it the writing in the sand? Somewhere along there, the Spirit of God began convicting this woman of her need of Christ. Because her three-word answer displays that. No man... Lord, we know not when the Spirit of God began working grace in our heart. We just know by the end of the story, the Spirit had done its work. For the wind bloweth where it listeneth. Remember John 3, when the Lord's talking to Nicodemus about the new birth? For the wind bloweth where it listeneth, now hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Can you bear witness? Can you bear witness to that? Can you look at that at your own salvation? Can you see that? Can you say, yes, I can testify to the divine truth of that. I can testify to the Spirit working in my own heart. Throughout this whole ordeal, she was silent. Throughout this whole thing, she was silent. She only spoke when Jesus asked her a question, too. She didn't say a word. And yet her silence throughout this entire ordeal, to me, speaks volumes. Speaks volumes. Not a word of her defense. Not a claim of injustice or unfair accusations. She didn't say, wait a minute, I wasn't the only man. There was someone else. You can't commit adultery without somebody else. You hear her say, not a word. To me, that speaks volumes. 
You don't even hear a cry for mercy. You would think she would at least say, have mercy on You hear not even a cry for mercy. What is going on in the heart of this woman caught in the very act of adultery? She simply stands silent before her accusers, publicly shamed. Let me give you a scripture verse that might answer her silence or give an answer because of her silence. Romans 3, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped. And all the world may become guilty before God. That every mouth be stopped. They brought her before Christ because she'd broken the law. Somewhere in there, the Spirit of God was sovereignly working in her heart and she closed her mouth and she stood before her accusers in Christ, guilty before God. It shut her mouth. Do you remember that? You remember... Do you remember your own salvation? The time when the law shuts your mouth and you had nothing to say before God? You just knew you were guilty and He would be right in condemning me. She didn't know that Christ would say, neither neither do I condemn thee. She didn't know He would grant her mercy and grace. She just knew that she was guilty. And the law stopped her mouth. Oh, what a work of grace. I'm getting ahead of myself. But you can tell the work of grace in her hearts because even though the law convicted her and and shut her mouth, when the others went out and left, she stood still there. Something about that conviction made her stay before Christ. And isn't that exactly what happened to us at salvation? We knew we were guilty. We knew God could condemn us. But still, we stood before the face of Christ. Even though her accusers went out one by one, yet she still stands silent before Christ. The law of God had condemned her. It had condemned her. But as a schoolmaster, listen to me, that's a big difference. That's why Paul says that in Galatians. The law of God had condemned the Pharisees. They went out with a guilty conscience. It wasn't their schoolmaster, but the law had condemned her but as a schoolmaster, you see the difference? You see the difference? You, you remember that in the, in the time of your conviction? You remember when, when you, was con- you felt condemned and guilty and yet something, something in you persuaded you, something moved you? There's no word yet of condemnation or judgment from Christ. She doesn't know what he's going to do. She has no idea. This woman had no idea. She didn't stand there thinking, okay, God will forgive me. She had no idea. She just knew that she was guilty. And for whatever reason, Jesus was the only answer and solution. She waited on him. She waited on him. Psalm 130. I'm trying to commit that to memory because that psalm is just amazing. But after he says all that, if thou should mark us iniquities, who shall stand? But there is forgiveness for thee that thou mightest be forgiven. My soul O Lord, my soul waiteth upon the Lord. Yea, I wait 
and I hope in his word. <laughs> she should mark a dick with you. She's standing there. She has no idea what he's going to do, but she's in the spirit of Psalm 130. If you mark my iniquities, I'm not going to be able to stand. I wait upon the Lord. My soul doth wait. And in his word do I hope. What was it that he wrote in the sand that gave them conviction that they would run away from Christ, but gave her conviction that she would stay? You see how the effectual working of grace works in the heart of God's elect? It's different. The law might convict a sinner, like we heard last week, but he'll walk away. Guilty conscience doesn't mean anything. But when that guilt leads you to wait on God, it is an effectual working of grace. Oh, don't you love God's salvation? Don't you love how he sovereignly and providentially ordained it to be what it is? He takes us to the very bottom, very depth of our sins. That he might show us the greatest of all mercies. No word yet of condemnation or judgment from Christ. I wonder what she was thinking. Shall he condemn me? What had Christ that the Pharisees and Sadducees didn't have? Why didn't she just run away? Something held her there. Something moved her to stay. And wait. You don't even see her striking the conversation up. Because it says in our text, it says, when Jesus lifted up himself, how long was it before he did that? We have no idea. But he lifted himself, saw none but the woman. He said to her, woman, where are the men accusers? Had no man condemned thee? Oh, see how the gentleness of God maketh us great. The psalmist said, the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. Look how Christ deals so gently with this woman caught in adultery. Look how Christ deals with this sinner. Well, the mercy and grace of God. And Jesus was alone, left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. That's what salvation is all about. There is one God. And one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus stood alone and the woman in the midst. There's one mediator. You, you see, that's what salvation is. It isn't something that just God just automatically, you know, does in no regards to relationship or love. It's it's an intimate thing. It's a personal thing. It's Jesus was alone with the woman. That's what salvation is. It's when we finally get to a point where we're alone with Christ. We're alone with Christ, and all we see is Christ. In our guilt and our shame, isn't that what salvation is? That's where we see Christ in His mercy and grace. In our guilt and our shame, deep in depth in the heart of guiltiness, we look up and there's Christ in His mercy and His grace. There's nothing there that man merits. When all else had been removed, when the schoolmaster has brought us to Christ, there's no longer need of a schoolmaster, Galatians says. That's why they went out and he was left alone with the woman. Look again at verse 10 and 11. When Jesus lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, I like that, he saw none but the woman, he saw none but the woman. Oh, 
he saw none but me. He saw none but you. He saw none. He saw there was a multitude there, but he says he saw none but the woman. None but the woman. It was like that woman with the issue of blood who touched his garment. He said, "Who touched me?" That's salvation. He saw none but you. None but me. Isn't that remarkable? Isn't that great? This is life eternal that they might know Thee, the only true God and His Son, Jesus Christ. We have fellowship with the Son and the Father. Saw none but the woman. And He said unto her, Woman, where are thou, those thine accusers? Hath no man had condemned Thee. Hath no man condemned Thee. She say. No man, Lord. Keep that in thought and go to Romans 8. We all know the text, but let's read it anyway. Let me tell you, there's truths in here, like I said, are hidden behind the words. Look at Romans chapter 8 and verse 33. We know the whole text, but let me just stick it to this. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? There it is. Ain't nobody going to do that. Where's your accusers? Is there no man to condemn you? No. Why? No man lays anything to charge of God elect. No man. No man. It is God that justifies. Who is he that condemneth? Is no man condemning thee? The accuser, verse 34. The condemnation, verse 35, uh, 33. Condemnation, 34. Who is he that condemneth? They condemned her. It is Christ that died. He rather is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God who maketh intercession for it. You see there? No one could charge God's elect. No one could condemn her. Why? Because she was Christ's. Where are your accusers? No man condemneth thee? No. No man, Lord. The only words this unknown woman says, and yet like her silence before, they speak volumes. Now listen to me. Not but a few minutes early, I don't know how much long earlier, but not just a few minutes Earlier, she had scribes and Pharisees. doesn't say how many, but there were quite a few because it says elders and younger. How many there was, I don't know. She was concerned about their accusations towards her. She was concerned about them bringing her before Christ to condemn her. Yet now she says, no man, Lord. It's almost as though the accusations and condemnation of her accusers now meant nothing to her. Only Christ. Listen to the wording again. Where's your accusers? No man can Timothy. The woman answered, no man, Lord. It's as though I don't care about them anymore. They mean nothing to me anymore. But you do. That's why I'm here. Not only was she in guilt, but I believe if you look at Scripture about salvation, when God gives us that Repentance unto godliness, the repentance unto salvation, it also he also imparts a broken heartedness because we've offended God. The Pharisees weren't broken hearted. She was broken hearted because she offended God. I don't care about them anymore. No man. Lord, but I care what you think. Her presence standing there, her three only words, displays how her conviction had turned her heart into brokenheartedness for how she had offended her God. 
She looks only to Christ now, filled with guilt and shame, condemned by her own conscience. She awaits Christ's verdict. She doesn't know he's going to say, neither do I. She doesn't know that. Listen to me. She's ready for the verdict. I'm guilty. I'm ready for the verdict. Filled with guilt and shame and condemned by her own conscience. She silently awaits the verdict. And Jesus said unto her, first time he addresses her personally. This first time he addressed this woman. He never addressed her before. Never even looked at her. Maybe, but it didn't say. He's never addressed her before. But now when he's alone with her, he addresses her. Before he addressed the scribe, now he's addressing her. He looked at the scribe and Pharisees, he without sin, has first known. But when he addresses her, this is what he says. <laughs> For the first time, neither do I condemn thee. Now, I don't know about you, but I have tried my hardest to put myself in that woman's place, which is virtually probably impossible, but I tried as a sinner. What weight, what burden must have been lifted from her soul to hear words she thought she would never hear? Neither do I condemn thee. Let me ask you a question. Have you really ever really seriously weighed, meditated, and prayed over the verse in Romans that there is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus? Think about no condemnation. The thrice holy God and Christ's salvation and righteousness is so perfect that there is no condemnation. God does not and will never condemn me. The weight and burden of guilt that was lifted from her to hear these unexpected words, neither do I condemn thee. Say what you want about Wesley, but his words in his song was true. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I wonder when he said those words like Peter. You remember when he, when he denied Christ the third time? One of the gospels said he could see Christ. It said Christ looked at Peter. He looked at his face. And I believe there's no condemnation. There was no judgment for what Peter did. I believe it was just compassion and mercy. Why do you say that? Because Peter left and wept bitterly. He offended Christ. He offended him. And he showed him no judgment, no condemnation for denying him, but pity and mercy. Peter gets up and leaves and weeps bitterly. I wonder if Christ, when he looked at her, the countenance of his face, as he said, neither do I condemn thee, Thine eyes diffused a quickening way. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Oh, this is salvation at its height. In the depth of our guilt and our shame, expecting condemnation, God forgives us and gives us mercy and grace. Yet he doesn't just stop there. I could go into much further detail, but I won't. But I want you to see the end of this. She said, no man, Lord. No man, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn thee. 
go and sin no more. You see, true salvation leads also to true sanctification. People believe today that Christ comes and just saves out of temporal needs, out of temporal problems. But salvation is not only being saved from the penalty and punishment of sin, but also from the very condemnation of it. Go and sin no more. And though this was a commandment, I believe also it was just a statement. It was a fact. It was a reality. You will go and sin no more. It's not like he had to remind her, okay, now that I've not condemned you, don't go out and do it again. I believe it's just a statement of the fact that he did not condemn her. Now go and sin no more. God does not save us so that we might sin. If grace abounds or sin abounded, does that make us go out? Paul said in Romans to sin even more. God forbid, how shall we how shall we sin? When we've been saved by such grace, it's a statement, it's a fact, it's a reality. Go and sin no more. I've not condemned thee, but now you must live a life in accordance to that salvation. You don't sin anymore. And we don't know. We don't know what this woman did later. We have no record of what happened to her later. But I believe with all my heart she did go and sin no more. Now, does that mean she was perfect? That's not what I'm saying. But I believe she left a different woman, a new creature in Christ. There is now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Go and sin no more. You see, we have in John chapter 8 a wonderful display of God's calling us out in his divine election. We have a wonder display of repentance. We have a wonder display of Christ's mercy and grace to a guilty sinner. And we have the effects of that salvation. Go and sin no more. We have the complete gospel in John chapter 8. Isn't it amazing how God calls all of us out of sin and depravity? Let me close with these few words of exhortation. Children, you should be thankful God, that he has sovereignly and providentially placed you in a home where your parents love God. There are countless children that do not have that privilege. Not saying that God can't save them, but he has placed you in a home where you have parents that love God. Pay heed to their words. And listen to Scripture, because God's given you a pleasure and a privilege He does not give everyone. And I hope and pray that like this woman, you would find yourself one day guilty before God. You are, but until you are aware of that, guilty before God, and that you might come to know His mercy and grace. Because that's really actually what it's all about. 
because believe me, if you ignore and despise the teachings of the Word of God, your mother and father, this very book will one day rise up to condemn you. And your condemnation will be greater than those who did not have such privilege. Take heed to the Word of God. Pray. And may God be merciful to us all. Amen. No man, Lord, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I feel so insignificant. Lord, to stand here and open up thy word and preach the unsearchable riches of Christ makes me feel so little and so like nothing. Holy Spirit of God, I pray that you would take the words of God in all my feeble efforts and speak to the hearts not only of thy children, but to those that are here today that don't know Christ, to the children who are yet lost without Christ. I pray that you would do a work of grace in their hearts. And like this woman, I pray that you would give them no peace of heart and mind until they find peace in thee. Lord, we trust in your sovereignty and your providence. We trust in the power of the gospel, and we pray, dear God, that you'd be honored and glorified. Lord, for us this morning, who have been saved by your grace, may we never stray too far from the shadows of Calvary. But may we ever be reminded of what you did for us on Calvary. May we, like the old hymn, survey the wondrous cross. Not just glance, but survey it. Look at every intricate detail the bruising, the crown of thorns, the beatings, the blood, the agony, the pain, the shame. And Lord, may we be ever grateful to you and what you've done for us. Lord, I thank you that one day eternally we will be yours forever. Until that day, keep our hearts close to thee. Help us to love thee supremely. Lord, we love you and thank you for all things in Christ's name we pray. Amen.